pray for you guys every Sunday at Christ Covenant. We, uh, our hearts are joined to you in many ways. And even though Jim moved off of Christ Covenant's campus and moved his office to his home, uh, we still get to see him often and, uh, and fellowship together. And so we're thankful for that. And so in many ways, our hearts are connected to you, though you may never think of Christ's covenant or may not even know who I am, but um, our hearts are connected to you, and it's, it's, I'm always happy to be able to come up here and, and certainly um, just to be able to share the word together. And uh, this passage was not one that was as familiar to me as many of the passages in John, but I was just telling a, a couple of the brothers beforehand that um, studying this passage this past week, I've been reminded again, you know, how the Spirit always does that work through His word of uh, applying it to our hearts and giving us great joy in Christ and love for God. And I hope that um, we experience that together this morning as we consider this passage that was just read. You know, it's interesting about the Jews in this passage that they have great, they have great yearning for the Messiah. They're, they're longing for the Messiah. They were longing for him because they had been uh, exiled and now subjugated. They are the backwash of the Roman Empire and they were primarily poor and despised. So they were longing for a Messiah who would lead their nation to its former greatness. And what's more, they had the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, which had been given by God over the course of centuries for the very purpose of revealing the Messiah to them. So they had the yearning for the Messiah and the knowledge from the scriptures about who he was. They had both knowledge and desire. And now they have him standing right in front of them in the flesh. Why did they not believe? What was the missing ingredient? If Jesus were standing right in front of your eyes, do you think you would recognize him? You know, an, uh, a a number of people who, who don't believe or who are skeptical of Christianity and of Jesus suggest that the reason they don't believe is because there's no evidence for Jesus. If someone could prove to them that Jesus was who he said he was and that he was really raised from the dead, then they think they would believe. Now, some who believe in Jesus uh, buy that line of reasoning and try to furnish the evidence to make the, the case for Christ. Now, I believe that the evidence is there, that a compelling case can be made. In fact, it seems to be the case that the faith of the church generally stands or falls on the basic reliability of the historical evidence regarding the life and death of Jesus Christ. But for these Jews in John 7, evidence was not the missing ingredient. Lack of evidence was not the problem, and Jesus knows this. Uh, They weren't submitting to God They weren't trusting in God's plan. Their trust was in human power, specifically um, a human who would be powerful enough to overthrow all the non-Jewish humans and to reestablish the Jewish uh, nation to its former greatness, to to make them great again. They wanted Jesus uh, to serve their selfish purposes. They wanted a God who would serve their ends. And Jesus says to them, the reason you reject me is because you don't know God. You refuse to submit yourself to the one who created the world and has revealed himself to you in particular. So believing in Jesus is really a matter of submitting to God, something that the human heart resists for countless reasons. 
I think that's what Jesus is teaching us in this passage, that believing in him is a matter of submitting to God. There are two sayings of Jesus in these verses which will form the basis of our outline this morning. Uh, The first is there in verse 28, and it's Jesus rebuking the skeptics. And then the second saying is in verse 33 where Jesus condemns the opposers. Uh, Not a bright and cheery message in this passage. Jesus rebukes the skeptics and condemns the opposers. The title of the sermon there in your bulletin is Who is Jesus? It could be called Rebuke and Condemnation which I think is what you see Jesus doing in this passage. You know, the late Archbishop Stephen Neal said that when you're reading these gospel narratives, anytime you're reading one of these stories in the gospels, that the, the stories um, are, f- find their meaning particularly in the words of Jesus. The whole point of the story, he says, is in the word with which it ends. Uh, these stories are not primarily biographical, they're theological, told for the sake of the utterance in which the presence of the Lord is made plain. The, the reason, in other words, that John includes these stories is for the sake of the words that Jesus speaks. In a, in a secondary way, we learn from the posture of those who are interacting with Jesus, the crowds in this case, uh, but we learn particularly from what Jesus says to them. And so, as we begin with the first of these statements that Jesus makes there in verses 28 and 29, we should recall the, the scene, sort of the setting of this story. John records this story at the Feast of Booths. If you've ever been through a Jewish community in the middle of October, you maybe have seen uh, booths or tabernacles, tents really, out in the front yard because Jews still celebrate this feast today, uh, where they dwell in tents for a week because Israel lived in tents um, when God brought them out of Egypt. This feast occurs around harvest time and kind of has these twin ideas of giving thanks to God for the harvest of another year, but also looking forward in anticipation for the coming delivering Messiah. And so this was one of the most popular of the Jewish festivals and, uh, and, and all devout Jews were expected to, to gather uh, again to Jerusalem and to come to the temple and, and worship, giving thanks for another year's harvest and coming together really to long for the Messiah. Imagine if Christmas for us was not about celebrating the birth of Jesus, but rather anticipating the birth of Jesus. It's something like what they were doing, longing for their Messiah. And strategically, it's at this moment uh, that Jesus enters the scene. And John tells us that about the middle of this week-long feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began preaching. So it's an especially sacred and important Jewish feast in an especially important and sacred Jewish space, the temple, and all the faithful Jews are there, and Jesus teaches. You know, it's like they open up their Sunday morning bulletin, and it says, today's preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. Their Messiah is now there with them, and the, the one they've been longing for, and yet they have great difficulty in recognizing him. They are at a feast established in anticipation of his presence, and he's here and yet they don't know what to make of him. So Jesus is is teaching a very divided crowd. You know, one of the things that John highlights throughout um, the, the gospel is that the crowds, the people are having great difficulty coming to terms with uh, what Jesus is saying and who it seems that he is claiming to be. And so you see the words of the skeptics there beginning in verse 25. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. 
can it be that the, the, the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And then almost as soon as they suggest that possibility, they dismiss it completely. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So it's obvious from their words there that one of the popularly held notions about the Messiah is that no one would know where he came from, that he would just kind of suddenly over, suddenly appear to overthrow Israel's enemies without anyone having kind of prior knowledge of him. And then they're assuming they know where he came from. And they're assuming, of course, that he came from Nazareth, that he's a Galilean. But here's what's really interesting. They're wrong about all these assumptions. Uh, they were wrong and the arguments of his origin, both about geography and ancestry. Uh, first of all, when the Messiah comes, they were supposed to know where he came from. So they were wrong about that, uh, that popularly held notion. They, they probably would have known actually themselves that one of their own prophets, Micah, says, uh, this is Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, though you're too small to be among the clans of Judah, uh, from you shall come forth one for me, who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You know, that was a well-known prophecy at the time, as it is to many of us, which they conveniently overlook in this case. And then they actually don't know where he's from. Uh, of course, Mary and Joseph relocated to Nazareth, but the Jews could easily have found out if they cared to inquire that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was a Bethlehemite, as Micah predicted. And they missed a second point as well, not only about Jesus' geography, but also about his ancestry, that Jesus was a descendant of David. Now, the Jews kept close records of these things, of, of ancestry and whatnot. And again, they could have easily consulted those records to trace Joseph, the father of Jesus, back to King David. But again, evidence was not the missing point. Uh, it wasn't lack of evidence. This was a case of selective amnesia. You know, it's, it's so often true that our, our memories are dependent on our wills. And so they don't believe what they don't want to believe. Uh, proving the proverb, there are none so blind as those who will not see. You know, unbelief and skepticism, um, just kind of two shades of the same thing, are, are never evidential but moral. Aldous Huxley, the British author of A Brave New World, who happened to die actually within just a few hours of both John F. Kennedy and C.S. Lewis on the same day in 1963. Um, he was a, a British atheist and said qu quite transparently, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because for one reason or another, it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. Unbelief is not evidential, but moral. It's willful. Paul says something similar in Romans 1, that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, that is in the creation of the world, 
They did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mankind and birds and animals and creeping things. You see what's going on in that exchange then. It's a moral exchange. It's about the worship of the human heart. It's not an evidential problem. God's attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So ironically, Aldous Huxley and St. Paul agree, unbelief is not evidential, it's moral. Huxley is right as he goes on to say, no philosophy is completely disinterested. Not to believe in Jesus at its heart is a rejection of God the creator. And this is exactly what Jesus says to them. And so at last we come to Jesus' statement where he responds to the skeptics there in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. He declares in response to their deliberations, he makes a, a declaration back to them. You know me and you know where I come from kind of throws their words back at them with uh, dripping irony uh, that they don't really know who he is or, or where he's come from. And then he goes on to say, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I have come from him and he sent me. Uh, it's fair to say Jesus blew their categories you know, they're arguing about geography and ancestry, and Jesus takes them to a whole nother level. Uh, he's saying the, that the one who sent him is, is, is God. He's already taught the crowd this in the verses that you all looked at last week. This is a way Jesus commonly refers to God as the one who sent him, he who sent me. So he's saying God, the true God, is the one who sent me, and him you do not know. D.A. Carson observed about that statement, the implication is that those who cannot discern who Jesus is cannot possibly know God, especially not now when they have the very focal point of the divine self-disclosure and the incarnate word before them. Jesus is the self-disclosure of God, and so to not know him is to not know God. But what an absolutely stinging rebuke. As Lindsay pointed out earlier, Jesus is telling the people of God that they don't know God. Now, of course they knew God, so they're in God's temple at this very moment, worshiping, you know, in, in the Feast of Booths, worshiping Yahweh, God. And yet scripture in so many places teaches what, what Jesus is teaching here, that it's possible to know without knowing. He says, you don't know God, when plainly they know God. And so it's possible to know without knowing, to know at one level without knowing at another level, to know um, facts without knowing the significance of those facts. And this is a particular danger for religious people who may know many truths related to God. They may have all the right vocabulary, live out the right ethics, and have very morally upstanding and respectable lives because they know God. And yet the distinct possibility remains that if Jesus were to encounter them, he would say, and him you do not know. A rebuke that he delivers to them in this case. So his rebuke of the skeptics 
calls us to evaluate our knowledge of God. Do you know facts about God? The fact that God exists? Or do you know facts plus the significance of those facts? The way Peter puts it in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 is um, he's talking about trials and testing in their lives and says perhaps you've endured these things so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about genuine knowledge, the tested genuineness of your faith. Uh, so that you, you may be found to have a genuine faith at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he describes what that genuine faith looks like in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you see what's going on there? He's talking about tested genuineness of faith and he describes it. You love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. You don't only believe in him, but you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And when you have that kind of genuine faith, then you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so the, the, the genuine knowledge um, genuinely knowing Jesus uh, will be expressed by love for Jesus. Though you don't see him, you love him. You have genuine affections for Jesus. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said, true religion in great part consists of holy affections, loving God and loving his son, Jesus Christ. And so you can evaluate the quality of your knowing God uh, by evaluating the quality of your loving Jesus, your affections for him, you love him. You not only believe in him, but you rejoice in him with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Of course, this doesn't mean that your salvation, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, is not dependent on the quality of your affections or you might think of that in terms of emotions, the love you feel toward God. You don't, you don't earn God's love by the quality of your love for him. But those, are, those affections for God are repeatedly described in, in scripture as consistent with and evidence of genuine faith. That genuine faith issues forth in uh, affections for God. And so if you have, you know, these facts in your head that you've heard and, um, and you would say maybe you believe in and yet the emotions or the affections, the feelings you have just don't regularly line up with those things that you uh, believe in, what do you do with that discrepancy? Well, I think there are a number of things to consider. One would be, are you taking advantage of the means of grace? Another might be, are you mortifying sin? Uh, the means of grace that God has given us, how, how we experience the grace of God so often is through the simplest things, prayer, Bible reading, and communion with other believers. Do you have those rhythms of listening to God in his word, the rhythm of speaking back to God in your life, and of communing uh, in Jesus with others who love him as well? If you don't have those things, it would, it would not be surprising, perhaps, that you don't have those affections. 
And then mortification of sin, uh, the killing of sin. Romans 8.13 says, if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, kill the sin, then you will live. You, are you killing sin? You know, if when you don't kill sin, sin tends to kill our affections. So David prays in Psalm 51 as he's confessing his sin and repenting of and turning from it. At the same time, prays, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Sin that's not being killed often kills our affections and our joy with it. And we should not expect great joy in God's presence when we have great comfort with sin's presence in our lives. And so those are a couple things to consider when there's a discrepancy between what we believe in and the affections that don't match that. I know that may seem obvious in one sense. Those, those are the simplest, those are the most basic aspects of the Christian life. Read the Bible, pray, uh, don't sin. Uh, these are the kinds of things Christian parents tell their young children. But I heard someone say recently that they had uh, some chest pains and some pain in their arms and were concerned they might have had a heart attack or some heart condition. And so they uh, didn't go to the doctor first. They actually went to WebMD, which I'm sure is what most of you do as well, and developed something called cyberchondria, which maybe you haven't heard of, uh, where the internet convinces you via self-diagnosis that you have, you know, some drastic disease. So he said, I had cyberchondria. Anyways, then he went to an actual doctor who had, you know, the diploma up on the wall from some great uh, medical school, and he did did the battery of tests and um, gave him a diagnosis of, uh, he's, he's over, he's overstressed, you know, he has too much going on. So the, so the prescription was get more rest eat better, and exercise. Just the most basic things. You know, so often we're looking in the Christian life when we feel kind of some struggle in our hearts. We don't feel the affections we should. Uh, Some Christians call it a dry season. I'm just, I'm, I'm not feeling it. And we look for some kind of elaborate explanation of why that kind of thing is going on, why we're in this sort of desert space. And (laughs) <laughs> the, the simple prescription is read your Bible, pray, you know, keep giving devoted attention to the word of God, kill sin, fellowship with other believers, and, uh, and ask the spirit to generate those kinds of holy affections in you. What we want, though, is affections that give evidence of a genuine belief. We're, we're after those things. We're encouraged by God to seek those things. Uh, What we don't want is a kind of vain and useless knowledge. Uh, Knowledge of facts um, without a coupled kind of awareness of the eternal significance of those facts. Uh, Just a couple other observations before we move on. In verse 30, no one likes to be criticized and uh, these skeptical Jews uh, did not like it either. It says they were seeking to arrest Jesus or to, to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now John doesn't tell us how Jesus escaped from this crowd that was wanting to seize him, but simply that God's overruling hand um, thwarts the intention of the crowd. They were sovereignly restrained in order that the plan of God might go forward on his own timetable. So here's a truth 
you know, just tucked away in this little story to be treasured by all Christians, that no trial can overrule the hand of God who governs all things and makes no mistakes in his governance. So there is the sovereign plan of God just woven into the story throughout the Gospel of John. And then in verse 31, we learn that there were some believers, at least tentative believers in the crowd as well. So John says many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done. And so here you see a second popularly held notion about the Messiah, uh, that when he comes, he would be a miracle worker. Um, and, and they had heard of him doing many uh, miracles, and some of them would have seen some of those things. And I think there's a reminder to us that external evidence is not bad. So don't hear me being negative about evidence, simply that it's not definitive. In fact, Jesus says in John 10, I'm doing all these works even if you don't believe in me, believe in the works. Uh, he, he encourages sort of the, the use of evidence as, a, as a, a crutch, so to speak, for belief as it moves towards genuineness. And that's why I say perhaps these here are sort of tentative believers. Um, evidence is just not definitive. In fact, in, in, uh, in John, I think it's chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. People weren't walking around doing that. He's raising a man from the dead. And there's a number of responses to that, but the religious leaders, John records, from that day on, the Pharisees made plans to put him to death. What could be more conclusive about who Jesus was in terms of evidence? And they weren't reading about that happening 2,000 years ago. They were eyewitnesses or connected to eyewitnesses who had seen it. And it, um, it was the impetus for their plans to put him to, get to death. Again, just proving the point that believing in Jesus is not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of submissive humility to God. Believing in Jesus is not evidential. It's moral. And so Jesus exposes and even rebukes the skeptics here. And then in verses 32 through 36, Jesus makes an even stronger statement, a a pronouncement, really a, a condemnation of those who are opposing him. Look again at verse 32. John says, The Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him, about Jesus, that he might be the Messiah. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, we learn later on that these officers don't even arrest him. It seems that they made it to hear him speak, but were so awestruck by uh, what they hear him say that they go back empty-handed. You know, there's a story of George Whitfield in the first Great Awakening. He, um, he, he preached uh, in open-air meetings, you know, and great crowds would gather. And uh, there's a story of one man who came to one of these meetings. You know, he had a number of opponents, and, and one of these men came with rocks in his pockets and in his hands, uh, just waiting for Whitfield to say something that irked him so that he could throw rocks at Whitfield along with other opponents. And so he was in the crowd waiting for Whitfield to say something that irked him. And as Whitfield preached, he was so convicted of his sin and of the glory of Christ that he was converted. And he said to Whitfield afterwards, I came to break your head, but through you, God has broken my heart. And maybe something like that softening occurs with these officers because in verse 45, we're told that they go back to the Pharisees empty-handed. Luke kind of delays to tell us this. You know, he leaves us in suspense 
Um, but verse 45 says, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, answered no one ever spoke like this man. I'll bet these officers were in the crowd who heard what Jesus was teaching. So now back to verse 33, you have this increasingly antagonistic crowd now joined by officers who had been sent to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says to them, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, the Jews don't understand this at all, as is evident in the following verses. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? the Jews aren't thinking on the level of transcendence. In thinking about the origin of Jesus, they had assumed they knew he was from Nazareth. Now, in thinking about the destination of Jesus, again, they can only think in, ge- in terms of geographic locations. Does he intend to go to the diaspora of Jews among the, the Greeks or maybe even teach the Gentiles? What is he talking about? What doesn't even occur to them is that in both cases, Jesus may be talking about something way beyond their experience, his divine existence. He came from God in heaven, and he will return to God in heaven. Not the earthly realm, but the heavenly. And so from this perspective, it's clear that Jesus is issuing a warning, or even stronger, declaring judgment beforehand over these who are opposing him. You may seek to arrest me, but there will come a time when you seek for me and you won't be able to find me because I've returned to God in heaven, a place you will never be able to come. In fact, in the next chapter, Jesus says almost the exact same thing to the crowd again. I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come there would come a day when they would find out that he was the Messiah, but it would be too late to be of any good to them. Have you ever um, found out something too late for it to do you any good? Um, I don't know if you know John Luther. He's the owner of Sola Coffee, a shop down in Raleigh, and uh, I've been on many trips with John, and one thing I've learned about John is that he loves the Lord, he loves the gospel, and he loves serving together, but as much as he ever has the gospel on his mind, he also has coffee on his mind. So we uh, went to New York City, and uh, we went to help a church plant up there, and he had a list of all the coffee shops that he wanted to visit while we were on our trip, and so it was kind of a half coffee trip as well. And uh, we're going to Atlanta, actually, this Wednesday, and no surprise, uh, a few days ago, he called and said, hey, are we, uh, are we doing public transportation or are we taking a car, renting a car? Of course, I saw where that was going. He had the list of coffee shops he wants to be able to visit while we're there. Anyways, a few years ago, we were in Ecuador. 
we went to Ecuador, and uh, John was really excited about that because I don't, I don't mean to be throwing John under the bus right now. He actually doesn't even know I was telling you this, so I should probably share that with him. But um, he serves a lot of fine Ecuadorian coffee there at Sola, and so he was excited to go to Ecuador, you know, go straight to the source. And uh, so we flew into Quito and took a, an overnight bus trip through the mountains. Uh, very little sleep that night. There was no heat in the bus, and it was very uncomfortable. And in the early hours of the morning, we got to this rural hostel we had planned to stay at, and we slept for a few hours got up and went downstairs to the cafe, excited to get our first cup of Ecuadorian coffee. And you might see where this was going. They, they had none. Uh, we were shocked, and so we went to the store. They also had no coffee. And what we came to find out is that Ecuador exports lots of coffee, but they don't consume coffee in Ecuador. All you can find is um, coffee crystals instant coffee, which was a major devastation for John. You know, he could have brought fine bags of Ecuadorian coffee with us from the United States to Ecuador. But we found out too late for it to be of any good, of any use to us there. With eternal significance, there would come a day when these Jews found out who Jesus really was. But that day would be too late. You know how on judgment day, that final judgment day, God will you know, sort out people, the genuineness of faith, there will be those on the right hand and those on the left and that kind of thing. Jesus is doing a kind of pre-sorting here. Where I am, you cannot come. You will die in your sin. What a terrible word of prohibition. It's as if he's barring the door. What do you imagine was the look on Jesus' face as he says something so horrible? A sly and gloating smile? Eager kind of death wish for these opponents who are nagging him? No, of course not. A somber face, perhaps tearful. We know he cried over the unbelief of Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't glory in this pronouncement. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. No, Jesus does not gloat in this condemnation. He's simply declaring God's certain and eternal judgment against all who willfully resist the Son. And in fact, this word of condemnation is matched in the very next verses by an astonishingly gracious invitation. John says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me. You know, Jesus came from God embodying in himself all of the perfection that God's holiness demands. Hebrews says he was holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners. Jesus embodies the holiness that God demands. And then he was killed on the cross, embodying in himself all of the evil that God's wrath consumes. He became a curse for us. He was forsaken by God so that we might be accepted at the throne of God, adopted into the family of God, granted eternal hope by entering God's presence, not being barred from God's presence, but welcomed in. The point of entry into all of these great blessings that Jesus has earned is responding to this invitation. Whoever believes in me, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Consider the kindness of God in calling to those who reject him. This is what God has, had been doing with Israel for centuries. Uh, through Isaiah, the prophet, God had pled with Israel, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon God had been calling to Israel in that way for years and yet Israel continues to reject him and Jesus is the culmination of this invitation. Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And yet these religious leaders were hardened in their rejection of Jesus. I know you may not put yourself in that category hardened in rejection of Jesus. You may be soundly converted, and yet the judgment of Jesus against them stands as a warning to us. Hebrews 3 says, therefore, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Therefore, we need constant exhortation from other believers to remember God's kindness and to stay within um, his grace. We must constantly work against the hardening tendency of our hearts, exhorting one another every day. That's Part of the reason we gather on Sundays to remind ourselves, to remind one another that we have rebelled against God, but God sent Jesus to be our Messiah, our deliverer from the consequences of sin and death and from the dominion of the devil, and to bring us into his kingdom and into his family and to guarantee us of eternal hope and to cleanse us for holy living. You know, we just want to hear that story one more time. That's why we gather together so that we might not be hardened. And so, you know, this, this condemnation against those who are hardened against Jesus just calls for prolonged self-examination about pockets of hardness in our own hearts, you know, those sins that we have long held that uh, are unaddressed, unrepented of, that you perhaps hardened over or calloused over. That's the kind of thing where you hear preaching, maybe even about certain sins, but you've kind of grown sermon-proof in those things. You know, you're just not even responsive anymore in those areas. 
that kind of hardening, as, as Hebrews says, is because of the deceitfulness of sin and leads to falling away from the living God. It's a profound warning that hardness of heart in regards to sin leads to falling away from the living God. In fact, Hebrews later tells us that there came a time when it was too late for Esau. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And Jesus tells these who are obstinate, you will die in your sin. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so the warning of Jesus, even the condemnation of Jesus here, is really the mercy of God to us. It's a preventative agent uh, to awaken us from stupor, from hardness, from callousness, to hold back the believer from willful pursuit of sin. So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believing in Jesus Loving Jesus is the result of happy submission to God. And so the words of Jesus here, both his rebuke and his condemnation, should cause us to reflect on the quality of our knowledge. Do you know him in a way that results in loving him and rejoicing in him? And it should cause us to reflect on the quality of our humble obedience. Is your heart soft to God so that when he tells you to be done with sin, you immediately obey him? May we heed these warnings and the judgment of Jesus toward the Jews so that we don't stand in need of them ourselves, which by the help of his spirit will be true. So let's pray together for that now.